That was pretty good. Okay. On my end, it was good. Now I understand how uh, Denali feels because yours looked like it was a whole full second after. No, mine, mine was perfect, dude. <laughs> <laughs> mine was perfect. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's not a problem. Um, my perfect Denali. Hello <laughs> and welcome to the GBG SB Good Boys Gone Summer Break. Oh. Uh, yeah, we're uh, we're on break here. We're missing the Denali man himself. Uh, today we have as your co-host Jace. Oh yeah, and as your co-host Ryan, because I think the word co-host to me implies two. You know, like it almost like the uh, it's almost like a duo host, right? Like we, sure. we might want to go into like a tri-host saying. That would actually be almost also unique. Yeah, so that's I why I feel that awkward many... every time saying like. Oh, I'm your co-host, and then like you're still to come. Hmm. Like you know, you're the third wheel. You're kind of like, oh, I'm here too. Let's. Uh, it is still technically the work day on the West Coast. Oh man, it's not. I am hammered. I'm gonna write that down as a to do. Try host. Yes. Yeah. A, a note. We'll take it to Nally. He will strike it down. <laughs> yeah. Let's be clear. <laughs> we have a lot of good ideas <laughs> that don't make it to the. Don't make it to the cast, as we call it. He also doesn't let us call it the cast. Yeah. He is a venerable dictator. Venerable is probably Vener- not Venerable <laughs> is not usually a word <laughs> before dictator. Uh, um, that's where we're at. We're a lemon drop and half of a old-fashioned deep on an empty stomach. We knew that the summer break was going to happen. Yeah. Right? Denali's off. At a, a con- he's gallivanting. Uh, a, he's gallivanting in Spain, I believe, which is super cool. But we decided to do as a group some bonus episodes, and I thought Ryan, uh, something that Denali and I had done for you a while ago, could tie into this bonus episode. Before we get, I think, any further, Ryan, you penned a novel. Is that the right word? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's a novel. As R.P. Ash, the man who the sea wouldn't drown. And Denali and I took a crack at doing an audiobook yeah. of uh, the prologue, chapter one. And I think maybe before we go any further, this is where I insert it. Insert what? The prologue. You want to insert the whole, in, insert it right now? Yeah. yeah. Do Now or after the interview? Well, we should... Uh... Skirt record scratch. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask Ryan some questions about his novel, and then you, the people listening, beautiful audience, beautiful listener who just like shoot this up to the highest downloaded bonus episode ever, get to listen to Denali and I voice the man who the sea wouldn't drown. Oh, that's um, the main thing. It's like you guys recorded this uh, in secret. Yes. Yeah, you didn't tell me this, this was going on. Uh, and then, man, it was like the coolest. I seriously think it was the coolest thing anyone has ever done for me. Like, this is a good way of introducing the what we want to call like an interview part of this episode. Because like the whole philosophy behind the book is the idea of oral storytelling. So I wrote the book as an exercise in writing down something that someone could read from the page and it would be in what essentially be an oral story. Like you could sound like you're telling someone a story, not reading them a book. And 
that is kind of uh, not totally intentionally, but that's kind of what the book is about as well. There's a person who uh, goes through these kind of adventures and stories start getting told about him throughout his travels. And he starts telling his own stories and he wants to be a good storyteller. So he's like sometimes doing things based on like what he would imagine heroes in the old oral stories of their of their culture, what he would imagine them doing. I don't know what to ask now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Okay. Yeah. I think um, from that, too, it was a pleasure to read. Oh, thank you. And one, it was one, it was an experience because we got to a portion where uh, there was talk about wood. And Denali took 20 minutes, I swear to God, to read two sentences. What? Yeah, I do, I do remember uh, some awkward phrasing hearing you guys say. I was like, oh, that's not how I paste those words in my brain. <laughs> There's several times I talk about, like, what the ship's made of. I talk about the decks being wooden and, like... I think it might have been just what he said, duty. <laughs> okay, so I just... While we were reading this, on page 12, and Timid is talking to the captain, Timid questions the the need oh, no. for, for duty to... to you know, somebody's duty to do an action. And I think this was it, but for, I swear, we, we took probably two hours to record this whole thing because we wow. did it together and then edited it down. But Denali had to take at least eight takes at one of these sentences to say it one time in a way that just wasn't completely different than any other take because he was laughing. And I'm almost positive it was saying duty. <laughs> So that's something, too, is like, I I don't know if I read the whole book out loud, but that's kind of the idea is where I would read it out loud to myself. I can't anticipate when someone would find the word duty funny, but like every time. Yeah, <laughs> now I know. like alliterations and things that like that like that um, do. I mean, are very purposeful or at least sometimes are avoided, mm-hmm. you know. That that was something about the editing process as well. It's like I told my editor that like the way I'm using punctuation is different. Like I'm using punctuation with a purposeful, uh, like as a purposeful tool rather than like how it should be correct grammatically. And that was difficult sometimes because I sometimes had to argue with them. And I don't know if any semicolons came through, but I remember arguing with them about semicolons because they would be like, this is technically accurate. And I'm like, I don't care what's technically accurate. And uh, I love the M dashes. Oh, man, those long dashes. I think they're not used enough in the English language. And I think they solve basically all of English's weird problems about like round sentences. Uh, I love them. I think as long as the, I guess as long as the reader treats them like a comma or like a clarify, clarif- or like a clarifying punctuation mark, like, oh, the author's about to clarify something, then uh, that's, I think they pretty much do. They're like a, like a good uh, panacea. They can do everything. So I guess it, this is actually interesting for me, mainly because the intricacies of written language are almost maybe lost on me as an engineer. What, um, what did you learn specifically about maybe the written English language writing this book versus what you had been taught in school? Is there something specific when you say that you needed this to be about, you know, yeah. the spoken word. People do not talk how they write. 
And that's something maybe you're in um, a text message conversation with somebody or like a group chat with somebody and you notice that, oh, this person's text, they sound natural. It sounds like them when they're talking. And then some other people are like using punctuation like perfectly and they're, you know, crafting long sentences and stuff like that. So it's maybe the opposite of you and your text messages where you hold a conversation well, but when I read your messages, I can't tell what's going on. <laughs> well, yeah, that's maybe a good example. Um, <laughs> okay, yeah, so well, the, the, inverse the, the example I'm saying is like people talk grammatically incorrect. People say the word and, mm-hmm. you know, we say and yes. when we start sentences all the time. I do that in this one. And like we repeat, each, we repeat ourselves if we don't think we're being heard. You know, and especially in telling a story, you don't want to repeat the same sentence over and over, but you can repeat it with small variations and that will convey meaning to the reader in a way that uh, you don't really want to do that if you're writing like a scientific paper or something that's really, really, really technically accurate. Um, I'll, a lot of my sentences are not grammatically correct. They don't have subjects and uh, they're basically... I use a period because I want a long stop, not because that's the end of what I'm talking about. The periods are simply to guide the reader into how to pace themselves through the paragraph. So that might, I guess that kind of brings us straight into uh, what we were talking about right before we recorded. You mentioned the italicized Mm. text at the beginning of the prologue, at the beginning of chapter one. And you were mentioning that its specific purpose was that you, maybe the author, are talking to right. the reader. And it's not so much that I'm talking to the reader every single instance. If this was being read aloud, mm-hmm. it would be the speaker talking to the audience, not the book. Okay. Like, so there's a difference between like that. all that information in those italicized portions is not available to the character. That information is available okay, to, yeah, yeah, yeah. to me only or if you're you know substituting yourself as me then it's available to the to the to the author and the audience and like the reason i did that is because try telling a story like an oral story without saying well wait wait i need to give context right and like yes it's, it's very much possible you know that's what the vast majority of novels <laughs> do but it's not realistic to give like perfect context through the book and through the characters and a dialogue really in every circumstance. Sometimes characters at times can be oblivious to what they're going on. And there's a certain amount of suspense that I can add that way. Whereas the old Alfred Hitchcock Mm -hmm. example of suspense is like, there's two men sitting at a table, there's having a normal conversation, maybe like you and me and underneath the table between them is a bomb and it's got a timer on it. And the audience can see the timer and they can see the bomb, but the characters can't. And they don't know what's there. Like, so you can you can yeah. use context that the characters don't know, or even like the world doesn't know about itself to to add to the story. And oral storytellers will do that. Like, listen to somebody tell a story, and they'll take breaks and they'll loop back and they'll say, and at the same time, this other person was doing this other thing. I, I it gave me a lot of flexibility, and it was really fun because. I could let my voice shine a little bit and I could use like the word I and I could use the word you. So I think I use the word you a lot. And it was necessary for me to understand what the book was going to look like 
because before I started putting those things in, I I didn't know what the book was actually going to look like or what the theme of the book was going to be about. Mm-hmm. Now, you, the listener, will hear this. Uh, right, yeah, in, there is an italicized section. Read the, the prologue, yeah. italicized sex. But uh, to start, imagine yourself in a near black void yeah. and uh, look behind you, yeah, however. Yeah, See, so okay. you yeah is, I get it's, it. It's you. So I was, yeah, me specifically. So I, I was imagining this, um, and I think maybe I just didn't understand it or know that it was a technique that is used in book well it technically is now because (laughs) i have done it but (laughs) i don't i don't know if i picked it up off anywhere specifically so i was i I guess i was going to say that i would imagine that after um in your book and maybe just from experience from uh dungeons and dragons and the pathfinder Mm -hmm. kind of like ethos uh the it seems to me after reading your book that the gods are very close to and are able to interact uh with the denizens of this world and it it seemed to me like there was maybe a notwithstanding my not knowing about maybe this being a technique that maybe there was a deity of sorts explaining to me the reader this world in the italicized text and i i enjoyed okay so that's the thing that's kind of where the idea for that original portion came up you're not far off the truth at all Dix. like that so that section right there was originally the way I would describe the world being created through the island's creation myth. Okay, yeah. And that is all done through... <laughs> okay, we should be clear. This is a fantasy book. It's like an adventure fantasy like with magic and shit. And so like, uh, there are these gods who exist and the characters don't know much about them at all. Like The religions are very kind of primitive and they, they kind of, they're on the right track, but they don't have all the delineations and like everything figured out so there are like some you know higher gods who kind of create and things like mm-hmm. that and there's other gods who populate um and so yeah you're really not too far off and that's a, actually a good way of thinking about it like it can be explained in world but i guess in that way me because i am sort of in that position if you think about it like uh if i really really role play I could be the god that's creating this world. Yeah, you penned it. So yes, absolutely. You you won't hear the name in the first chapter, but we've got characters such as um, Vorn, Berend, Janella. What? Uh, what? Yeah. This is just interesting for me from a DM perspective. What? What kind of process do you go through when you're thinking about names? When you're okay, naming a so character, so this is interesting in a scene. because a lot of those names come from my friends and their D and D characters. So this was okay. where my world was set. Yeah. So this is a lot of these people are their characters. Uh, many of the names I've come up with, but for me, it's number one it has to be silly. There cannot there cannot be a serious name. There's no yeah, Freds great. or Johns. I guess I have a one guy who's like a normal name later in the book. But like, there's it has to have some sort of levity to it. So where the reader will be like, that's a unique name. I've never heard that before. And it sounds kind of stupid. Like, I wouldn't, I would never, that is actually honestly amazing that you would say that to me. Because I'm reading this book and I'm looking through these names and I'm thinking classical fantasy. Like, wow, these are really well chosen. So, okay, I'm going to... Thank you. Never I would like I think that. silly. These, these are the ones that made the final cut. There are some in there that I really don't, that I think are really stupid. Like, there, there's a character named Grenbo, 
And that's the dumbest name. It doesn't even sound like a name. It sounds like um, something someone would squeal out if you said made up, make up a fake word. That's the reason why I put it in there. I think someone, I was at a party and someone did say that word. And that's how it made it in the book. Uh, just hmm. stupid things like that. I think for me, it was very important to make it my own and to not be relying on any sort of like, for the gods and things, it's different because I want them to like, the, I want the pantheon to reflect like accurate. Um, if there's like a god of stone, it's somewhere, you know, store is like the man of stone and all that kind of stuff. And so like stride long is a man and we walk on two legs and things like that. Um, but I, for the most part, I think it should be stupid. And you should make the reader kind of be like, or if someone's reading out loud, you should make them kind of be like, uh, how do I say this name? Yeah, I was. That's my next question. What? How? How? How do you feel personally? Imagine yourself having 10, 15 books out. How do you feel about care? How uh, normal readers pronouncing the names of your characters in different ways? Like timid is obviously uh, in the English vernacular, but um, say something yeah, like right. like yeah. I'm saying Barrent. I. What if somebody says Barrent? I think that's or great. Uh, root. So- I think multiple interpretations is fine. It does not ruin my image like, of what I like. That's totally okay. Yeah. And, fi- and you know what? I don't care if people change the names. I say that in my like author's note at the beginning of the book. It's like you can change the book to do whatever you want with it. And like the only way that would ever matter is like if the name was in a song and that word rhymed or like was important to like the cadence, uh, then, then it might matter. But I don't really care. It's fine you can mash it up you can change it around i'm and i'm not like i'm not married to this in a way that like it should not be altered at all that's the whole point that's the whole reason i put it out there if i didn't want it to be altered at all i would have kept it secret with the stark contrast on the shrieking aisles of a land that at times can be almost i mean seemingly northern but yeah. seemingly tropical in my mind to the far northern reaches, which mimic our right. Alaskan homegrown heritage. I was wondering, what um, did you take a look at the whole land before you wrote this book, or uh, did you were you discovering the okay, locations that's a good as question. much as we did? Uh, like, no, the world was completely it. developed. The one thing I would say is the side characters are made up as I'm doing it. I wouldn't say as I'm doing it, like they're made up for the book, mm-hmm. but like the world existed pretty concrete. And that was a the reason that inspired me to write the book in the first place is that I've had the I've had the idea for this book for over 10 years in my brain. Like I even tried writing a couple different times, except when I found this setting, when I when I made this setting and I found that it was compatible with this old story I wanted to tell, then I'm kind of mash them together and it kind of inspired me to do the rest so uh the the setting i think is very important you need to find somewhere that you connect with and the great thing about making up your own is that you can just freaking make it it doesn't have to make sense like just do it like (laughs) especially if magic exists like you could be like oh there's a freaking magical wall here that makes it you know sense for the plot so that they can go from cold to hot like instantly it doesn't matter just do it that is almost uh, contrarian to one of the most popular fantasy writers uh, right now. The author of oh, Brandon series is Mistborn, and he very specifically creates 
at the outset, I believe, of his books. Yeah, I've hard got soft rules. rules. So I, I have soft magic. So in this, it's basically I don't want to spoil too much. And also, this is not spoilers for the first book. It's spoilers for the second book. <laughs> but like the the way that the magic works is more that it's a bargaining process, right? Where like the the gods have access to certain abilities beyond the physical plane, and the more you uh, get friendly in a way with those gods, like the more they're willing to like bend the rules of the physical universe for you. And so there's not really a hard rule. There's no like, you know, equation. And that's some, some reasons why Timid will get stuck in sticky predicaments is that like, he doesn't have access to uh, the things that he needs and he has no way of getting them other than bargaining. That's one, something that I, I do really hope that people pick this up and read is now that you explain that, that is quite a bit more apparent. The and I th- I think back to a certain scene, um, in a forest with, I believe mm-hmm. the character Swate, where there is this this uh this bargain that you aren't necessarily isn't uh, maybe isn't fresh in my mind, but um you experience it firsthand from the main character Timid's eyes, where you see this kind of bargain take place in exchange for power right and the implication there that you only get later in the book is that like swate has met the initial criteria he's met the what stride long like says okay you pass you're you're allowed okay what do you want and uh when swate wants to use fire if he's still on the good side of the god then he's able to do so and the a theme later in the book mm-hmm. is like how that standard changes throughout time. And so at the beginning of the book, we have someone who's like a really awesome adventurer and he's, he pretty much can do what he wants. He's like, okay, I need to do this. I'm going to save my buddy. Okay. I can pretty much do whatever I want then. But then later in the book, you got total assholes who have access to the same thing. And it's kind of how does power corrupt the process? And, uh, that's not mm-hmm. like an overt thing. I never say like, it's kind of just, uh, that's kind of my way of making myself feel good about what I've written is that there's something hidden, right? Like it would probably be a better book if a lot of that stuff was stated outright yeah. and explicit, but nobody, nobody really is going to read this like multiple times. It's, <laughs> it's not like I have a devoted fan base. I'm like an actual author, right? So like, to me, the best thing I can do is to write something that has a lot of hidden meaning and I, like a lot of stuff that you wouldn't mm-hmm. pick up unless I did explain it to you. And then maybe people like want to come talk to me or maybe they want to like, uh, you know, read it again or something like that. I, it's not like I'm trying to sell a thousand copies mm-hmm. and I want to just, you know, lay everything out there. It's kind of meant to be kind of digging around. That's the whole fun of a big story like that. I think it's interesting, too, from from a DFX standpoint that they are fallible, maybe, so to speak. So maybe Swate has the power that he has because his god feels a specific way about a follower and kind of, you know, follows like we both play a D&D or a tabletop role-playing game, um, kind of follows my current campaign where the characters are all, you know, almost right. champions of this evil deity. They're given boons. They're they're gifted a boon if they do something that the deity would like. No, absolutely. Um, that power is given. That's the whole take. idea: is that the different gods have different standards. Some of them don't even know what they want, and that's kind of that's yeah. the, how the whole book like gets going. 
kind of like, oh, let me put, let me dip my hand in the pot. Ooh, hear me out. I want to say, I'm holding up the book to the camera to Ryan. This is not a video episode. We do not have a visual medium. Uh, this book has beautiful chapter art. Do you want to give a shout out to the whether or not they maybe do or do not listen? Do you want to give a shout out to the well, author? I can guarantee the author does not <laughs> listen. Um, my author is someone from Brazil. She did the cover as well. Um, and uh, she's absolutely amazing. I think her name is Juliana. Uh, she did all the the inside artwork. She basically asked to do the inside artwork and everything. And uh, it's all by hand. So I, it's all very like unique for me. And uh, I, it's one probably my favorite thing about the book. <laughs> it's like the one thing I didn't do. Uh, yeah, I, I'm 100% happy with it. I'm more than happy with it. And uh, I, I, I do agree. The, the artwork is fascinating. And what was the process for finding? No, so there's, so there's a website called 99 Designs that like lets you do a contest to design the book cover. And then I chose her design. And then we, did, we went through and got the final product. And then I offered her to do more work because I liked it so much. Yeah, and she's just absolutely, absolutely phenomenal. These prints are amazing. Yeah, so we, we don't have to go into this too much, but like, what I would do is I would send her portions of the book, and she is Brazilian, and she was learning English at the time, and so she would read the read the passage, and uh, would make a drawing, and then would send the nicest messages in the world back to me. She would like literally like the nicest messages I have ever heard. It made me so happy with the whole process. It's just like how impressed i am with the final product and mo not real the words like it feels like a book that you'd pull off a shelf and it's weird to know that like i made it it does it does i think the final question before we go into the audiobook portion of this where our listeners will get to listen to the prologue do you um you specifically what character whether it be timid the main character or otherwise do you feel like you connect with most. Which character in this book has the most of you in them? I don't think Timid does. Timid's too cool. <laughs> um, the Grenbell character is, I think, really great. I really like him. Later on, we get the character Vorn, who is really cool. He's at the end of the book only for a little bit. I really like him. And also Baron is just an absolute blast. Like, uh, Baron, I think, is my favorite character to write because he's the comic relief, you know? And, like, you always imagine yourself being the comic yeah. relief and all the stories you tell. But, like, uh, he's an absolute blast to write. And he's, like, he's probably the most fully formed in my brain because, I don't know, I just like thinking about him so much. Vorn, maybe? Are we looking uh, forward to more well, Vorn? Well, that's something. It's, like... Book two? Those characters are put at the end of the book for a reason, right? I, I absolutely hate when a, a, a second entry or third entry in a book picks up with, like, a new character. And you're like, who the hell is this guy? I didn't read that. I don't want to read this. Like they're they're there for a reason, and like they do have an outsized influence on how the book ends, and that's very important. Do you have any closing remarks about the man who the sea wouldn't drown before we go into the prologue? Actually, yeah, I want to say like if there's anybody out there who's like maybe has writing as a hobby or like is considering taking it up or considering just writing a book, my advice would just be do it. Like it was probably the most rewarding. Thing I've ever done in my life like it was phenomenal and the the amount of good reception you'll get or like people who are proud of you will blow you out of the water like I was way taken aback by how supportive you guys were and 
just write, just write. There's no, you don't have to do something perfect. Write the first hundred pages before you edit a single page. Like just write, just write, just write, just write. You're going to, none of those words are going to make it into the final copy, but just, you got to put them down there. You just have to get good. You'll be so much better after the first hundred pages than you were after zero. You can't expect your first few pages to be good. Like you, you're going to rewrite them after you've written hundreds of pages. Like you'll get better. Hell yeah. Um, I guess as much I that's a really one inspirational thing to say. Not to two, I guess maybe to Dally Nice Horns, it uh is the exact same thing for recording this. It was a pleasure to record the prologue of this book. I look forward to legitimately finishing it out. Um it was amazing to do the character voices, to do some of the songs that I please stick around for those. Yeah, the songs, you gotta at least listen to the songs. Yeah. And um this is uh, The Man Who the Sea Wouldn't Drown by R.P. Ash, our very own GBGB, and voiced by Jason Denali. Thanks for stopping by. The Man Who the Sea Wouldn't Drown. The Ballad of Timid Stormwind. Book One by R.P. Ash. Prologue. The Malachi. To start... Imagine yourself in a near-black void. You hover over a hunk of rock. Viewed from far away and far above, this little floating rock is like any other. There is sea, and there is not sea. There are high places, and there are very, very low places. But most everything is in the middle. Where sea meets stone, where people can enjoy some of each whenever they want. Look behind you, however, and you might see some things harder to understand. Little dots of light, a giant ball of hot flame, and another, tinier, floating rock. Shiny and dark at the same time and in equal parts. All these things, too, have stories. But the story we want is much, much smaller. Look down a little more closely at the rock below, and you'll see an island. A rather large one, actually. The one with a broad, soft edge on top, and a hard, pointed tip on bottom. This is the Shrieking Isle. A land of golden opportunity and foggy misery. If you watch it for long enough, you'll witness a patchwork of white melt away into fat brown splotches and thin blue rivers. Swaths of green will sprout here and there, but those eventually disappear too, this time into yellow. And then, for whatever strange reason, it puts on that patchy white coat again. Squint just hard enough and you'll see things moving around where they probably shouldn't be. They aren't even on the island. They're miles off the coast in little wooden ships, braving crashing waves and thunderous winds. The story that we're looking for begins on one of those ships, the Malachi, because the people on it have just done something that they really, really shouldn't have. Teetering out over the Malachi's edge, a young man watched wave after wave crash against its hull. Timid Stormwind, they called him, and that most definitely was his name. You might think it cruel to plague someone with so much tension in their name, but sea folk are a different lot. You see, 
the ones who do survive to old age are usually cut from the same humble cloth. Do too much risk-taking in your younger days, and well, let's just say that calling someone shy or calm is actually a pledge of confidence. Timid read the lines of wind on the water. And I used to think the world was small, he thought out loud. The horizon was there, yes, but nothing else. Even if he stared over any other railing on the ship, still just horizon. It is, boy. The graveled voice came from Brawlin, a large, muscled man with bits of sun-dried skin peeking through his burlap shirt like blue sky through incomplete clouds. Sorry, timid, he continued. Forgot you don't grab the net anymore. But the world is only big from a boat. Brawlin turned and strode away, path as straight as a tightrope, as if the sways and sags of the ship were merely a pleasant breeze in some other, sturdier place. Timid wondered how long it must have been since Brawlin had outgrown the net. Maybe decades. Birds had returned to the ship earlier that morning, a sign that although the crew couldn't see it, they closed upon land. For the first time, or at least so he told himself, Timid had not longed for it. During the last storm, he had kept his feet planted on the deck without help from the net that crisscrossed the Malachi's railings, and now the crew treated Timid as one of their own. As an adult. As a sailor. As a pirate. And the birds brought another welcome sensation to the ship. Noise. The sloshing of waves seemed to drown itself out after a few days, and the sounds of the ship all felt artificial. But birds, they were of God. A ship always has needs to care for, but heading to port gives the crew a little more flexibility than they get when hauling nets. Even better, time on the wheel was quite leisurely. Timid had swabbed for years, and his knees still wore rugged calluses and pieces of splintered wood, unlike a number of the other dozen crew members who picked up sailing later in life with more marketable skills. And yet, Timid was one of the few with steering privileges. Captain, first mate, second mate, and Timid was second mate. Longer tenured than anyone on the Malachi except for Captain Azira. The fact that someone else was first mate was a testament only of Timid's young age. He couldn't be first as a matter of politics. Employing even a second mate who still grabbed the net was enough of a hubbub, but at least that was over. Timid spent his extra time daydreaming on the railings or in the nest, but right now he was due at the wheel. If left to do too much daydreaming, Timid would wonder whether he was actually first mate now that the Malachi was a few hands short. He didn't let himself stare out over the sea for too long, lest he came up with an answer to that question. Timid turned and walked towards the back of the ship, trying his best to look as suave as Brawlin had. But because his sea legs were measured only in years, not decades, his path snaked across the busy deck as the ship swayed from side to side with the colliding surf. And with a busy deck comes song, always. As much a part of life aboard ship as wooden boards and translucent fins, every sailor fills a role in the constant choir ringing out over the ocean. Some songs, the long-haul chants, force rhythm and teamwork onto tasks incompletable by a lone worker. Others were mere limericks or whistle tunes that breathe life into an otherwise lonely task. And because always includes today, today was no different. Davin, a young one-handed man they kept around out of a sense of loyalty, 
called out the chorus to five sailors hauling a rope. Oh, high on the watch, abandon you reckon. And the multi-man chorus boomed out in an off-key response. Way, yay, sail the wind. wind. Tibbin mumbled along to himself as the call and response mimicked an echo behind him. Oh, low below deck, abandon you mutton. The Malachi was a peculiar boat in several ways, none of which were due to the crew. First, it wasn't fit for whaling, the new craze that emptied harbors and turned captains into prospectors. Second, it wasn't that big. Only a dozen crew and one fish hold. But what the Malachi lacked in cargo capacity, it made up for in speed. And so it still got hired. Its lateen sails, the large triangles falling from slanted crossbars that nearly touched the deck at the front, allowed it to chase the wind rather than just follow it. And lastly, and for this the Malachi was a modern ship, it had a wheel and a rudder. No oar hung from the stern down to the water on a long handle. Rather, the ship was steered by a movable piece of wood and iron, affixed on a hinge to the back of the keel. As Timid passed the belly of the ship, he again realized that the fish hold smelled empty, even though it was not. The ocean supplied its usual saltiness, which all sea folk knew as closely as their own odor, but the smell of fish typically overpowered the deck with its own unique stench, the one that there was no mistaking. Today, nor in the last three days, no smell came from the hold. Sometimes Timid could imagine one. He imagined a metallic smell like gold, from coins and the jewelry, like iron, from the knives and the blood. Nobody else appeared phased, and the symphony continued to populate the air. If I don't come home, my mistress will kill me. And stay away from my wife, she thinks I'm with ye. Timid reached the stern climbing the port side stairs to the aft castle. His shift had been called out a few minutes ago, so the wheel was unattended. A thick, frayed rope looped around one of its pegs, fastening it to the floor so it didn't get a mind of its own. His clothes were in damp patches. Ships are wet places, after all. But on this hot summer day, it was mostly sweat. Timid went to the stern's water barrel, submerging his hands and ignoring the small mug tied to its rim. He cupped some out and fed it to his lips. A little salty, but some of that was probably from his own hands. His brain imagined the metallic smell again, making him sick to his stomach. With refreshing disregard for portion control, he downed a few more handfuls to quell the feeling. Birds were back, after all. Using this much water for cosmetic hygiene really would not have been allowed if there were no birds. It was the ship's second-to-last water barrel, another reminder that this trip had taken a few days longer than expected. Two barrels for a dozen sailors wouldn't last long, and they never, ever broke the seal on the last barrel. The understanding among sailors and fishermen was that if you were desperate enough to open your last barrel, you'd never need to open another. Dead men don't drink. And not a dozen timid he said to himself. Only nine. 
Tim had threw the guide rope off the wheel and was thankful to see it had been tied to the king's handle, the one with notches at the top so you could tell when the wheel was set to straight. They were without a first mate, so when they needed another crew member to take a shift on the wheel, they chose Yarly, experienced, loyal, and dim. Yesterday, he had left the wheel tied up off-center, meandering them west a few extra miles before Tim had started his shift and noticed. Tim had stared out, surveying the flat, calm sea. Captain was probably asleep, since he insisted on being night shift. And the rest of the crew was sleeping too. That left six on deck, including Timid. Since most of the work happened during the day, they were fine with three at night if Captain was one of them. And a ship with no captain on deck suffers from the occasional daydream of its helmsman. When night lays its shadow across the shrieking isle, it is better to be in your bed than out of it. So as the crew affixed a new canvas cover for the fish hold under a budding darkness, Timid wasted no time in retiring from his post. Some others, too, looked forward to the shift's end. Yarley had pulled scrubbing duty for a second shift today, which was not a coincidence, and scrub he had, removing the last bit of red stains from the deck and the stairs. Timid was happy for it, and now walked without his stomach turning in every other step. Timid descended the aft castle steps down to the main deck. They each creaked in a different tone, reminding him of the evening spent in Shrieksport taverns, listening to terrible local musical troops. He turned and faced the doors that stood tucked away in the rear of the ship between the top two decks. Rather flimsy after suffering a decade of weathering, they offered no real protection from the cold. But they meant something. And they looked good. Painted recently, actually. A large squid with an arrow-shaped head and six long and swirling tentacles adorned the center at eye level with Timid. The door was blue, but the trim, carvings, and squid wore a rough coat of yellow. He cut the squid in half by pushing the doors open. Captain Azira lounged in a chair, head tilted back and mouth open. His arms hung at his side and a half-empty bottle sat on the floor at his fingertips. A large blue hat, adorned with a familiar yellow squid, lay upside down behind the chair and an old, outdated map covered the table. Tim had grabbed the hat, set it on the captain's chest, and rolled up the map. Such important charts belonged in a closet, but he let the map stay there for now. Maybe Azira was using it for something. The captain was a notoriously difficult man to rouse from sleep. Tim had walked back to the open doorway, turned and faced the room again as if he had just entered, and knocked on the doorframe loudly. He had his own special way of knocking, and it worked this time just as it always had. The captain clamped his mouth shut and wiped his lips with the back of his hand. <sighs> Timid. He yawned and stretched his arms and legs, shooting his bootless feet out under the table. Where's the day gone? Not to waste, Timid answered. We should port around dawn. You know, with how little you sleep in your bed, you might as well let me have it. Timid didn't feel humorous today, but that's what always got through to Izira, who harumphed and gave Timid a dismissive, tired look. Miss it that much, do you? Izira joked. He enjoyed reminding Timid of the year or so that Timid spent constantly on the Malachi. When the ship was docked in harbor and the crew and captain were off for the night, 
Timid was allowed to stay on the ship and, in exchange for cleaning and keeping watch, sleep in the captain's quarters. He wasn't technically allowed to at first, but he'd been caught by tidying up after himself a little too well. Azira had struck up a deal then. Timid closed the door behind him and walked up to the table. He hid his hands behind his back. Sometime in the last hour, his fingers had begun trembling with an agitation that had been built up over the last three days. Especially now that he'd made up his mind on what to say and was now only searching for the courage to let his words slip past his lips. Looking down at Azira now, seeing the old man physically beneath him, he found it. After we port in Shumane, Timid said, I'm going to collect my things and charter a ride to Shriek'sport. That's my decision, and I won't hear anything else on it. Azira sighed and ran his hands over his scruffed face. After a few moments, he sat up straight and set his hands back down on the chair armrests. He looked like a king. Aye, Timid. I won't stop you, Azira said. He chewed on his lip for a moment before leaning forward and resting his elbows on his knees, twiddling his thumbs together. But it's my duty to make sure that you won't do nothing to hurt the crew. Duty? Timid blurted out, unable to stick to his plan of remaining calm. Now you care about duty? There's only nine people on this boat, Azira. Timid turned sharply towards the door and walked away. Maybe he had pounded on the table. Maybe he had stomped across the room. Maybe he had pulled the doors open hard enough to make them swing and clang against the wall. Whatever he did, the five men staring at him from the deck had noticed. Even the birds seemed to stop and peer down as well, hesitant to pierce the silence. Timid took a few steps toward mid-deck, heading for the stairs down to the crew quarters. Brawlin stood at the top of the stairwell with a full sandbag on his shoulder. Timid stopped a step shy of running into Brawlin's chest. A few breaths passed, and Timid finally looked up to meet Brawlin's eyes. They were big, like Brawlin, and wide open, like he had just seen a peg-legged ghost from one of the Seafolk tales. Slowly, Brawlin pivoted himself out of Timid's path. Timid descended the stairs and entered the crew quarters in the steerage. As if the ship had permission to breathe again, bodies resumed their motions and the birds called out again. Timid sat on the edge of his hammock and removed his boots. He rolled his wax earplugs between his thumb and forefinger and fit them snugly into his ears. In a few minutes, he was asleep to the muffled sound of planks being scrubbed. In a few hours, he was awake to the feel of water on his face.